0: We're going to turn in our Bibles tonight to Judges chapter 13, Judges chapter 13, and we want to begin reading at verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and barest not. But thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Let's stop reading there and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask you to bless our study of your word tonight. We thank you for this service. We thank you for uh, these who have come who've seen the need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together to not to come and hear a man, but to come and meet with the God of the universe to come and meet with this wonderful Savior whose desire is to be here and meet with us. And we pray that you would bless our hearts as we look into your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been spending time on Sunday morning studying Israel's final words, words of prophecy to his sons. And a few weeks back, I think about a month ago, we looked at his words to Dan in Genesis chapter 49. And we are going to turn back there, but he begins his words uh, to Dan there in verse 16 of Genesis 49 by saying, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And just as it was with his other sons that we have talked about, this prophecy of Israel came to pass because Dan did judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And here in Judges 13, we begin to read the fulfillment of Israel's prophecy concerning Dan. And the fulfillment of his prophecy brings before us A very interesting man, but much more than interesting, a very important man. Probably the most well-known of the judges who ruled the nation of Israel. And that man is Samson. He's an important man here in the Old Testament because his sin and his failings and his weaknesses are the very things that we see in our own lives. Samson was a believer. Not only was he a believer, he was a man of faith. And such a man of faith that we find him mentioned in Hebrews eleven thirty-two. 32. And we find him mentioned in that verse alongside the names of David and Samuel and the prophets. Pretty good spiritual company to be in. That makes him an important man for us to consider. And as the Lord leads, if he leads that way, that's what we want to do in our subsequent wednesday night messages samson is a picture he's an old testament picture of those who know the lord jesus christ as their savior he's a picture of the warfare that takes place in the lives of god's people Well, we say he was he is a picture of those who know the lord jesus christ as their savior And there's some ways that we see that. His birth was miraculous, for one thing. It was impossible by human standards for Samson to be born. His mother was barren. Sterile is one of the meanings of that word, barren. Which means her womb was lifeless and dead. But the angel of the Lord, who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ... And we know that because Manoah, the husband of this barren woman, says in verse 22 concerning this angel of the Lord, we have seen God. So this was an Old Testament appearing of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord Jesus appears to this woman with a message. It's a message of life. It's a message of hope. Thou art barren, but thou shalt conceive. If we think about it, that's the message of the gospel. Thou art barren. You have no life in you. You're dead in trespasses and sins. Barren is our spiritual condition before God. But God says thou shalt conceive. And how is it that conception can take place? How is it that life... Can, can be conceived in a dead and lifeless body. It takes place by the power of the Spirit of God. As the Holy Ghost comes upon us and moves upon the face of the waters of the Word of God and convicts us, reproves us, shows us our sin and our need, shows us the judgment and wrath of God under which we're living, And the righteousness that can only be had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we humble our heart and we turn from our sin and we turn in faith to the Lord Jesus, the very life of Christ is conceived in us and we're born again by the power of God. Thou art barren, but thou shalt conceive. That's the miracle of salvation. And it's pictured to us here in the birth of Samson. And so the Lord tells this woman that she's going to conceive and bear a son. Now look at verse 4. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. The Lord is giving this woman instructions concerning her prenatal care. And the instructions cover what she is not to drink, covers what she is to eat. She's not to drink any alcohol during her pregnancy. Now, that is not to suggest that it's okay to drink alcohol after the baby is born. I want to make that very plain. God is very plain in his word in Proverbs chapter 20 and Proverbs chapter 23, just to name a couple of places, about his standard, and his standard is complete abstinence from alcohol. But this verse is worth noting because it's one that demonstrates scientific and medical knowledge that was revealed by God 3,200 years ago. We think we are so smart in this day and age. We think we know so much. God knew it 3,200 years ago and beyond. He knew it in eternity past. I want to read you something from Johns Hopkins. Um, And you can find the same information on the CDC website. Alcohol and pregnancy. The risk involved with alcohol use during pregnancy. Drinking alcohol while pregnant is a leading cause of birth defects in babies. Every, and, and this is why. Everything a mother drinks also goes to the baby. Alcohol is broken down more slowly in the immature body of the baby than in the body of an adult. This can cause the alcohol levels to remain high and in the baby's body longer. The risk of miscarriage and stillbirth also goes up if the mother drinks alcohol. Even light or moderate drinking can affect the developing baby. No amount of alcohol is safe. So pregnant women should not drink alcohol. What an amazing book this is written by our amazing creator who fearfully and wonderfully created us and who is jealous, jealous of the protection of his creations in the womb from the moment of conception. I just find that verse to be a very interesting verse, verse 4. In verse 5, God gives this mother instructions concerning her son. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Samson was to be a Nazarite unto God from the, from the womb. We read about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And that vow was a vow of separation unto the Lord. And what we see in Samson's Samson's life is that he was to be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. He was to be separated unto the Lord from the day of his birth to the day of his death. He was to be in complete and total submission to the Lord all the days of his life. Now That's true of us if we're saved. God's will for us, from the moment that we're conceived by the power of the Spirit of God, from the moment that we are born again, is that we be separated unto God from the day of our birth to the day of our death. We're all the time thinking about what is the will of God. Where can I find the will of God? What is it? The Bible is full of the will of God. And one of the places is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That word sanctification means to separate. It means to set apart for God. So the will of God for our lives as believers is the same as it was for Samson. That we be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. That we be separate unto the Lord from the moment that we're saved. Now we notice something else in verse 5. The visible manifestation of the fact that Samson was a Nazarite was that no razor was to come on his head. Now I'd like for you to turn back to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, because we do want to look at a little bit about this vow of the Nazarite. Numbers chapter 6 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, And here's the purpose of it. To separate themselves unto the Lord. To separate themselves unto the Lord. The Nazarite vow. That was the purpose of it. Samson was separated unto the Lord from the womb. And in that, he is a picture of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. It is the will of God that we be separated unto him. From the time that we're saved. Now look at verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. Now, I want to mention something here that I think is is worth mentioning. You have heard it before, but there may be younger people who haven't, and they at some time may be confronted with what we're going to talk about. This is the vow of a Nazarite. And the emphasis on that word Nazarite, because from time to time you'll hear people say that the Lord Jesus was a Nazarite. That is not true. That is not true. Some of you may have been in, uh, well, Christians don't have arguments, but discussions, let's say, uh, with with people who wanted to make that argument. Well, keep your place here because we want to be able to look back here. But turn over to Matthew chapter 2 for just a minute. Matthew chapter 2. Look at verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. The Lord Jesus was a Nazarene. He was not a Nazarite. Now. Another reason that we know the Lord was not a Nazarite is because he never kept the vow of a Nazarite. If he, if he was a Nazarite, then he didn't keep the vow. Look over um, here in Matthew at um, chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. now in in numbers in numbers chapter 6 i'll read you this we'll be coming back here and if you still got your place there but in numbers chapter 6 in verse 3 we read he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. The scripture is very plain here that a Nazarite will not partake of the fruit of the vine in any form. Well, look at Matthew chapter 26, and look at verse 26. And as they were eating... Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Here the Lord Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. In verse 26, he takes the bread and breaks it and gives it to the disciples. He tells them to take it and eat it. And then in verse 27, he takes the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them and tells them to drink all of it. And what was in the cup at this first communion service? Well, look at verse 29. The Lord tells us, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. That's what was in the cup. That's what was in the cup. The Lord Jesus drank of the fruit of the vine, and that was forbidden to a Nazarite. But he drank it because he was not a Nazarite. He was not bound by the vow of a Nazarite. We just read in number six and verse three that the Nazarite shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Well, look at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and look at verse 33. Matthew 27 and verse 33. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. The Lord Jesus drank um, he tasted here, rather at the beginning of the crucifixion, at nine a.m. The Lord Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, tasted the vinegar, but he wouldn't drink it. Now look at verse forty-six. In about the ninth hour, about the ninth hour, it's now six hours later, and the Lord Jesus has just ended. He's just endured these three hours of darkness, these three hours of the eternal judgment of God that was poured out on him against our sin and against our rebellion. And he cries in verse 46, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias or Elijah. And straightway, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And right here, we won't take time to turn to it. But here, at this point in his account, in John chapter 19 and verse 29, John tells us, now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. The Lord Jesus drank vinegar. That was a fulfillment of prophecy, by the way. In Psalm 69 and verse 21, David prophesied these words, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The Lord Jesus drank vinegar, and that was forbidden to a Nazarite but he drank it because he was not a Nazarite. He was not bound by the vow of a Nazarite. In number 6 and verse 6, we read that a Nazarite, all the days that he has separated himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. We'll look over a few pages at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. In this chapter, we read about Jairus who was, ruler of the synagogue, and he came to Jesus because his little girl was sick. His little girl was at the point of death, and Jesus went with Jairus. But you remember that as he was going with this man, he was delayed by a woman who touched his garment. And while the Lord was dealing with her, we see in verse uh, 35 of Mark chapter 5, While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain, which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master? Now look at verse 38. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, but when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. The Lord Jesus not only came near a dead body, he touched a dead body. He came near a dead body uh, when he touched the bier that was carrying the son of the widow of Nain, who he raised from the dead. So the Lord Jesus touched a dead body. He came near a dead body. All of this was forbidden to a Nazarite. But he did these things because he was not a Nazarite. He was not bound by that vow. Now, There's a particular part of this vow of a Nazarite that we want to to think about. If you'll look back again at at Numbers chapter 6. If you'll look back at Numbers chapter 6 and if you'll look at verse 5. All the days Of the vow of his separation. There shall no razor come upon his head. That's what the Lord told Samson's mother. Concerning her son. And the reason we want to think about this. Is it gives us an opportunity to talk about hair. To talk about men's hair. That's important I think. For us to to think about. Starting back in the late 60s into the 70s and really since that time long hair has been and and is to some degree today in style even among believers and one of the arguments that you hear in defense of a Christian man having long hair was that this idea that well Jesus was a Nazarite, so he had long hair. Well, we've seen from the scriptures that he was not a Nazarite. The Lord Jesus drank of the fruit of the vine. He drank vinegar. He touched a dead body. He came near a dead body. He did nothing that a Nazarite was supposed to do. And that includes having long hair. Folks, Jesus did not have long hair. And we want to see two reasons for that. The first reason is here in verse 5. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head. That's talking about uh, a man, for example, in the nation of Israel who wanted to take the vow of a Nazarite. For whatever period of time it was, there was no razor that was to come on his head. The only time that a razor did not come upon the head of an Israelite is during the length of time of this Nazarite vow unto the Lord. Now, I'll tell you what that means. It means that short hair was the norm in Israel. Unless a man was under a Nazarite vow, then the razor came upon his head on a regular basis to keep his hair short. And again, I would would remind you that the Lord Jesus was not a Nazarite. And if we need any further proof, look what happened when the days of a Nazarite's vow were fulfilled in verse 18. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. When the days of his separation were ended, he cut his hair. He cut his hair back to the length that it had been before the vow. Short. Short. This is the first reason that we know that Jesus didn't have long hair. Short hair was the norm in Israel. The second reason that we know that Jesus didn't have long hair is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Folks, the Lord Jesus never, never did anything that was a shame unto him. He never did anything that was a shame to his father. He said in John 8 and verse 29, for I do always those things that please him. He was completely obedient to every word of this book. And so when when the scripture says, doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair is a shame unto him, the Lord Jesus Christ did not have long hair. We can say that on the authority of the Word of God. Now, I'd like to take a moment and say something about men in long hair, if I may. Because some of you parents are going to have to fight this battle with your sons one day. And you need to be equipped for the battle. We mentioned 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? There are two things that come to mind from the Word of God that nature teaches us. And by nature, we mean that which is innate, that which is inborn. It's... um. As Thomas Jefferson put it in the Declaration of Independence, it's self-evident truth. Truth that we are born knowing. We have to be educated out of self-evident truth. I was talking to a former student here. This is just a little side thing, but it sort of fits in with what we're saying, what we're talking about. And this former student said, you know, we we used to sit in chapel and listen to Mr. Creech. And his point was, we really didn't appreciate it like we should have. But you know what he said? He said, Mr. Creech is exactly right. He said, if you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. And he talked about how our worldview, when your worldview is under attack, then you're in trouble. Well, our worldview, if you think about it, God puts a worldview into us. You don't have to teach children to argue with children when you tell them in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. They believe that. They accept that. It's It's... Self-evident truth, it's even in children that they have been created by God. Well, there are two things that the Bible says that nature teaches us. One is the distinction between men and women. At the beginning, God made them male and female. And so by nature... We know our roles. By nature, we're heterosexuals. And so therefore, as we learn in Romans 1, 26 and 27, when women change the natural use of the woman and when men burn in their lust one toward another, it is against nature. It's against nature. The other, that tells us something, by the way, about the depth of the rebellion of the society that we're living in. The other thing that the Bible says is against nature is long hair. Long hair. Doth not even nature itself teach you that a man, that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. It's against nature. And so to, to go against that which nature teaches. Or a better way to say it is to go against that which the laws of nature and nature's God teaches is the very definition of rebellion against the God of heaven. So it is rebellion for a man to have long hair. And I want to suggest to you the depth of the rebellion that it, it brings to light. Look at Revelation Chapter Nine. I think we got time to do that. Look at Revelation Chapter Nine. Revelation Chapter Nine, we read about the fifth. Of the seven trumpet judgments. And we're just going to hit the high spots of these verses to get the point. Verse 1 says, And the fifth angel sounded, and when that happened, verse 2, He opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. Verse 3, And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, Now listen to verse 7. Look at verse 7. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns of gold. Listen. And their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women. The rebellion of men wearing long hair is rebellion that comes from the very pit of hell. One other thing about this. After Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame on him. He says in verse 16, but if any man seem con- to be contentious, Argumentative. If any man wants to argue about long hair, and you know one of the, the the argument people think they're so clever, they'll pull this one out and think, oh, you've never heard this one before. How long is long? How long is long? Listen, Paul says, We have no such custom. In other words, he says, Look, we aren't going to argue about this. We don't have a custom of arguing. About the word of God. Without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. There is no controversy to the word of God. There is nothing that can be said against the truth. You can rebel against it. You can fight against it. But you can't fight. I mean you can't um, defeat it. God's word is God's word. And so if you want to be contentious about it. You're not arguing with mom and dad, you're not arguing with me, or you're not arguing with, with with Mr. Taylor or Mr. Creech or Mrs. Pond or any of the people at the school. You're arguing with with God. You're in rebellion against Him. Now let's go back to Judges 13, because um, there's there's one other point here. Judges chapter 13. Samson was a man with long hair. And um, his long hair was the secret of his great strength. Look at Judges chapter 16 and verse 17 for just a minute. Notice what Samson tells Delilah. He is laying his head in Delilah's lap and he's pouring his heart out to her. Verse 17. Well, let's read verse 16. It came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death that he told her all his heart and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon my head for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me and I shall become weak And be like any other man. Samson had long hair. So do we use him to justify our long hair? Do we use him to justify our rebellion? God forbid. It's not why he's here in the book. He's here to teach us a critical spiritual lesson about living the Christian life because Samson's hair brings together two words that we normally don't think of as belonging together. Hair in the Bible is a symbol of glory, but long hair for a man is a shame. So in this man, Samson, we see these two things, glory and shame. We see them together, and it was this combination of glory and shame that was the secret of his great strength. His glory was his shame. That's to be true of every child of God. Remember, we're to be Nazarites. We're to be separated unto God from the womb, from the moment that we're saved. Our glory is to be our shame. And what is our shame? It's our sin. And where was our sin judged and dealt with? The cross. The greatest place of shame that has ever existed or will ever exist is the cross of Calvary in Hebrews 12 and verse 2 we read about the shame of the cross the shame of our sin and rebellion and wickedness is so great that the Lord Jesus despised the shame (coughs) excuse me And yet he took it upon himself. And because he did that, Paul wrote in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, in effect, my glory is my shame. The only place I can glory is the cross, Because there my shame was dealt with by the blessed Son of God. We sing this truth every time we sing the song Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of thy face, content to let the world go by, to know no gain nor loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. If we're saved tonight, it's this combination of glory and shame that is the secret of our spiritual strength. How strong we are spiritually is determined by how much we glory in the cross, how much we think on it, how much we love it, how much we enter into it every day. Samson is a picture of those who are saved. And in this combination of glory and shame, we see the secret of his great strength. Is that combination present in our lives? Or are we lying down? in the lap of the flesh, as Samson did in Delilah's lap, and allowing our own deceitful heart to shave us, to shave our heads, to shave and take away our glory in the cross and rob us of our spiritual strength. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've put this man, Samson, in the book, because it gives us an opportunity tonight to talk about so many practical things that need to be manifest in our lives if we're saved. We just pray that you would take your word tonight and and use it in our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.